Hello, Adam Greenfield here, host of the Great Communicators podcast series. And what you're about to hear is the full, unedited interview with one of the guests we spoke with. If you haven't listened to the fully produced episode yet, I definitely encourage you to do so before listening to this one. They're shorter in length and much more refined. You can find them all at gradx.mit.edu forward slash podcasts. The idea behind these longer, unedited conversations is to give you an opportunity to hear the entire talk, orts and all. This is not only a fun way to hear the full flow of the conversation, but it also emphasizes the importance of the points made in the shorter, produced episodes, which, again, can be found at gradx.mit.edu forward slash podcasts. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the conversation. To start then, um, can you give me or can you tell me your name and occupation? My name is Sage Rosenfels. Uh, I am a retired NFL quarterback of 12 seasons. Uh, I live in Omaha, Nebraska. I am a father of three kids. So that's uh, one of my occupations, I guess. And I dabble in different aspects of the media, whether it be calling football games, uh, writing articles, uh, doing radio shows, radio interviews, um, uh, and all that type of stuff. So uh, I also invest uh, the, the money that I made when I was playing football uh, and uh, pay attention to all those businesses or real estate deals that uh, are ongoing. And probably pretty frightening. I mean, we, we hear those stories of, of athletes retiring in any sport, you know, and all of a sudden, a few years later, they're bankrupt. Yeah, there is a, a crazy stat um, that something like 80% of NFL players after two years removed from the NFL are, I think, either divorced, bankrupt, or, or something like that. And uh, not surprising, obviously, the divorce rate's just high in general. And, yeah. and amongst young people with a lot of money, I've, I always say that giving young people a lot of money is not really a good stepping stone to maturity. Um, and uh, as well as you know, a lot of NFL players, uh, different maybe than baseball or basketball, but uh, the majority of players, one, don't make that much money. Uh, a lot of them are making four, five, six hundred thousand. 600000 uh, not 10 and 20 million, like you sort of see amongst the premier players. And and the majority of players only play for, you know, two or maybe three years in the NFL. The average career is just over three years. So you've got a lot of players who make, say, a million, million and a half dollars, and then obviously taxes and all sorts of things come out of there, and the money gets to be gone fairly quickly. Um, so uh, it's not a surprising stat that guys, uh, you know, sort of do go broke fairly quickly. And all it really takes is, is one injury to kind of cut all that income off. Yes, it's true. The, the, the hard part about the NFL, uh, say different than baseball, is that you, uh, the injury aspect of the game, whether it be head injuries or knee injuries, um, can really shorten a career, end a career almost immediately. And um, so you never really know when you're playing, uh, when you're going to be done playing. Um, it's it's, it can be very nerve-wracking. You sort of are living on the edge when you're playing. Um, but you, the only way to be successful and, and, and play at a high level is to play on the edge. Um, so it, it is very obvious when somebody isn't um, 
I guess, going full go, that's actually the best way to get injured is to play, uh, I guess, sort of passively um, or, uh, you know, to play to not get injured is the best way to get injured is, is the best way for me to say it. Okay. Okay. And I hear players like Terrell Suggs, for example, you know, was playing this season with a torn bicep and we heard uh, just this morning, Elvis Dumerville stated that he had a torn Achilles that he's been playing through a 60% torn Achilles. You know, it's just, it's, and he the entire time was playing concerned that it was going to completely tear or pop or whatever it may be. Um, so that's got to that's that's got to be a frightening thing to to try to deal with, I guess. It is, and uh, you know, there's a lot of every player by the end of the season um, is has different injuries of some sort. Uh, it's just such a physical and brutal game. Anytime you get uh, grown men who are you know usually minimum say 190 pounds up to 350 pounds uh, who are trained to run as fast and be as strong as possible, you create a lot of force. Uh, and the, the body isn't, no matter what you do, you know, training-wise and lifting weights, and no matter what you do, uh, it's not set up to take that type of punishment and that type of, uh, you know, contact and force. And, and so, yeah, injuries are a major part of the game, and it's uh, one of the main reasons why players don't play very long. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, you have a degree in marketing from Iowa State? I do, yes. Marketing in the Iowa State Business School. Okay. So what did that teach you about uh, communicating, not just about your profession, but um, you know, other ideas to people who may not have the same background? Well, I, when I was trying to pick a major, there was really nothing that uh, truly uh, that I wanted to do. You know, I wasn't one of those kids who, when I was 16 or 17, who just knew I wanted to be a doctor or a lawyer or uh, you know, own my own business, an entrepreneur. Um, I thought I'd probably, I, I would probably be in the business world. Um, I always have liked ideas and, and uh, sort of the creative side. Uh, I guess I, I feel like I'm a little more creative than analytical as far as. Uh, so I, I decided to go to marketing rather than say finance or accounting. Those those positions did not interest me. Uh, looking at numbers all day. So uh, I've always taken that view of business, uh, sort of more the, uh, the big world view or, um, you know, how, how products can be marketed or what would be a good product or a good app or a good website or, you know, one of those types of things. So when I do invest in my real estate, uh, or other, uh, projects like that, that is definitely not my specialty. And I have to lean on, uh, close friends and uh, people that I really trust to, uh, that is their uh, that's their specialty. Okay. So on the field as a player, um, you're dealing with communicating pretty much the entire game. You know, you have to you get the the communication from the sideline, which is the play, um, and then you have to communicate that to your teammates. And we'll we'll leave audibles and and the pump fakes out of the equation for now. <laughs> you know, but can you give me an example play from one of your old playbooks and what that would sound like if we were in the huddle? Yeah, sure. Well, in the NFL, for one, I'd like to say there's multiple languages, uh, you know, probably just like for a computer program where there's different languages and just the you know, English or, or Chinese or French or Spanish, there's different ways to say the same thing. Uh, well, in football, there's different ways the same thing. So, you know, in a what, what they call a West Coast type of offense, which is West Coast language, you'd say something like double right, zebra right, three jet, zebra arches, uh, 
and that would be the play. Uh, in a different type of system, one that Norv Turner, who is a longtime NFL uh, offensive coach, uh, he would say uh, uh, twins right motion, scat right 525 F post swing. These are the exact same plays in two completely different languages. So, so is there, uh, let me see if I can figure out a way to, to word my question understandably. So is, is should there I break a way, down, well, should I break uh, that, down what that means? That's kind of, I guess that's kind of my question. That sounds complex, but do these pieces have a general meaning behind them? Absolutely. So generally in an NFL play, you uh, start with a formation, uh, you know, two players in the right, two players in the left, or to start with three players in the right and one player in the left. Um, and where is that what they call the strength, which is usually what the position of tight end uh, signifies the strength uh, of the formation. So um, on a play double right, so double, it was sort of a different way of saying two. Um, so it's a two-by-two two formation, right being the tight ends on the right-hand side. And then when I say zebra right, well, zebra is this position in the West Coast offense where he is in what they call the slot or the sort of midway point between the outside receiver uh, and the offensive lineman. Uh, he is the zebra player in the West Coast offense. So I say double right, zebra right. So I sent him uh, in, in that formation to the right um, from the left-hand side. So now he's over on the right-hand side in a what we call a trips formation. Um, so now he's in a trips formation. We're going to run a trips play. So um, the next thing I said was three jet. Uh, that is a type of protection. So that is telling the offensive line, uh, the running backs, the quarterbacks, the tight ends, really everybody, how the offensive line is going to block that play. Uh, who, are, who are they responsible for if, uh, the Sam linebacker blitzes or the Will linebacker blitzes, who is going to block who so everyone's on the same page. Um, and then at the last type thing I said was zebra arches. Well, zebra arches is a name of a, uh, a pass pattern, um, and that really tells all the other receivers and the running back what to do. Um, so as a quarterback, you have, obviously have to understand all of it. Uh, as a running back, they're really listening for the three jet uh, and the zebra arches. That's really it. They're not so worried about the formation as much. Offensive linemen are really just listening for three jet. That's all they really care about uh, is the pass protection aspect of the play. So uh, everyone has sort of their individual responsibilities, and it sort of tells everybody what to do. But generally, almost all NFL offenses and college offenses start with a formation, a possible motion, uh, some sort of protection, and then the pass pattern. Interesting. Okay, so how do you how do you disguise that? If these are general concepts that even the defense might know, how do you disguise that so the defense doesn't doesn't know what you're going to do? Yeah. So you run the the exact same uh, form you know formation and motion, and you can really run hundreds and hundreds of of plays out of that same play and formation, and that's. Now, teams use a lot of different formations. They'll bunch guys together. They'll, uh, they'll start in an empty formation, which is just a quarterback in the backfield and motion guys around. Um, you know, sometimes you have three receivers on a side. Sometimes you have two. Uh, you can even put four on a side. Um, so uh, there's a lot of different variations and combinations you can come up with, which then attack the different you know, possibilities that you're going to see on defense. And uh, I, I've always felt that, uh, you know, people that are, say, engineers, and I'm sure MIT people would, would enjoy the aspect of the, um, what I always call the physics of football or the science of football. Uh, there's definitely reasons why 
defensive players um, are positioned, you know, inside a wide receiver, outside a wide receiver, who they're trying to funnel that player to, uh, and those types of things. And it really is a, a numbers game when you re- really break it down. Hmm. So, okay, so you went you went from being a player on the field and studying playbooks in a classroom with all these complex ideas and terminology and what seems like even a choreography to each play. Um, and now you're in a broadcast booth where you become the communicator of all these elaborate schemes to the common audience. So how do you ensure that you're explaining these complexities in a way that they can understand and not lose them with all this jargon? Well, I, I don't bring up all that jargon within the play. Um, I, I do feel like the sort of common football fan uh, who watches a lot of NFL or watches a lot of uh, college football uh, does start to understand when somebody starts to say a two by two formation or a three by one formation. If, you know, if I'm doing a replay and I say they're in a three by one trips formation here, I I think most fans at this point, if you watch enough football, do understand uh, what that means. Uh, Oh, look, so there's three receivers on this side and there's one on the other side. That's trips that makes a lot of sense um but you do have to be careful with giving too much of sort of that type of uh information that's not commonly known um you do have to talk about uh you know safeties being deep or safeties being up close to the line of scrimmage to tackle you know those types of things you do have to simplify the game down but i think there is a uh, there's definitely a a way of doing that and you know it's, it's always a learning experience I, i'm sure sometimes when i've called games that i've been too complex and i think sometimes i probably don't give uh the fan enough credit as well so the really really good ones like chris collinsworth they're great storytellers uh teaching the science of the game is a small aspect of being a color commentator a lot of it is a storyteller um about how a play developed about how a matchup uh, occurred or even sometimes a an off the field uh, you know, type of story that sort of gives, you know, more credibility or background to a certain highlighted player. Huh. Yeah, I like John Gruden's um, analysis. He he can be a little intense sometimes, but I, I like his, his play-by-play analysis, when I, or color commentating, I should say. Yeah, so John Gruden, um, he, so he's, he's one of those anal- uh, analysts, and, and this goes, uh, I think most of you understand this, that a lot of times people love analysts, and a lot of times people hate analysts. It's just sort of the way it goes, and everyone has their own style that they like more. Uh, he likes to talk the X's and O's of the game. He was uh, obviously a coach uh, for a long time in the NFL, and that was really his specialty, is always talking the language of football. So I think sometimes he occasionally likes to sprinkle in uh, you know, one of those plays. Oh, we got 200 Jet X slant with space. He's going to come out. He's going to look at X. He's not going to like it. He's going to reset his feet over the ball. He's not going to like it. He's going to get to his 4-3 to the halfback on the wide. Perfect play, first down, Houston Texans. I mean, that's John, what John Gruden likes to do. And I think some fans do like to see, wow, this is all that's going on on this simple play that was just a you know, pass to the running back. And, and it, adds a, it adds a depth to the game. <laughs> you know, like you're, you're watching these, these people running around, running into each other, and, you know, from the, from the unfamiliar eye, that may look like they're just running into each other, but there's there's a depth and complexity to this game that you know, needs to be explained. It's, it's, an extremely, it's an extremely complex game. And when you, um, you really can't be dumb to play it. Uh, you can't be dumb, at least from a football aspect, to play it. Um, and the longer you play it, the longer, the more knowledge you're going to have. And you have to realize this is the, the player's full-time job. 
the coaches full-time job. I mean, uh, we were talking off the air about Mark Trustman, who was one of my former coaches. I mean, he has his law degree from the University of Miami. He's not a dumb guy. And he's a long-time right. NFL offensive coordinator. These guys spend a lot of time in the off-season, in the summertime, coming up with new concepts, coming up with new plays. Um, doing, I mean, you, you practice so much. It's not like you have other things to do. This is your full-time job. You spend somewhere probably between four and six hours in meetings every single day as an NFL player. There's a lot of information and a lot of teaching and coaching that goes on. Uh, it's definitely not a simple game. My older sister uh, always asked me, how come you don't run trick plays all the time, and how come guys always just run into the pile and they don't run around it? Uh, so, yeah, fair it, question. Seems simple on TV. it seems simple on TV, but it's definitely more complex than that. Sure, sure, sure. Um, I had no idea Tressman had a law degree. You know, even John Urschel, one of the smartest men in football, you know, he took some classes at MIT this summer, um, these mathematical classes that – then it's 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 it it sort of kills that jock stereotype. Um, and I, yeah, well, I, and, and believe me, football players do plenty of things to live up to that stereotype as well. And you know, there's I've also learned that there's a very big difference between uh, being say smart in a normal classroom and you know mathematics or science or something like that, and then being smart uh, in a sport. Um, and there's people who are you know brilliant uh, and they go to MIT and Harvard and those types of places, but have a really hard time understanding how basketball and football really works um, in, in a lot of ways. Or, yeah, obviously, it's a different type of, I think it's a different type of creative uh, smarts that go into uh, athletics than in, than in, say, a classroom. Sure, sure. Okay, so you played, you played football in front of, of audiences of all sizes. Um, do you remember your first time in front of a large, like, stadium-sized NFL audience and what you were feeling at the time? Well, um, yeah, I mean, college NFL are very similar. I mean, once you reach that level, I mean, my first college game probably had over 50, 55,000 fans. Uh, I think they had about 55,000 fans. I definitely remember walking down, you know, from the locker room. You had to sort of walk down a ramp uh, to the field and really just looking up at all the people in the stands and the crowd and just being in awe. And I'm, I'm sure my, my mouth was open, my jaw was dropped. And uh, I completely almost like left the group of quarterbacks that I was walking you know, down with. I was just completely in awe of the situation. Over time, you definitely get more and more used to it. Uh, and you get so focused on what you're doing, the crowd just becomes this thing that's around you. And it's not something you really pay attention to. Believe me, we can't hear you when you yell at us uh, from the stands. We don't hear any of it. Uh, we're, we're very focused on our job, and plus, there's usually you know seventy or eighty thousand people uh, that that uh, you're you're not going to hear your complaint at us uh, over their voices as well. So you're not going to hear me screaming through the television, then I, I take it. Definitely not going to hear that uh, <laughs> either. So um, you, you know, you, you, as I said, you get used to it over time, um, and you're so focused on your job. There's a lot of adrenaline uh, in football. I mean, there's there's games that. A lot of games, even if I didn't play and I was the backup quarterback, when I was done, I was exhausted. There is a big-time buildup uh, to, you know, before the game, even the night before, the nerves um, and sort of the nervous energy that you know, when you go into a game and then you play the game and there's so much, uh, you know, it, it's, anytime there's, I think there's violence that goes on and such a fine line uh, and playing on the edge like that, um, there is a, 
an energy um, that sort of pushes you, you know, through pain and through injury. Uh, and, you know, obviously you, you sort of build to have the courage to go make a crazy dangerous play um, because it's, it's just, as I said, the, the adrenaline you know, really does. The adrenaline rush is what a lot of foreign players really do miss because it doesn't matter how much money you have, uh, you know, what, what type of car or house you buy and how much golf you play. You're never going to get to that type of uh, adrenaline rush from when you're playing football. So how do you stay calm and focused in that moment? Again, I think a lot of it is just based over time and, and practice. You know, anytime you practice something hundreds and hundreds or thousands of times, you get so used to it that uh, your body just sort of does it. And it just sort of adjusts and you're, you've trained your mind over years uh, to make certain throws or make certain reads. Um, I think you just get so focused on what you're doing. You're just not worried about what's going on around you. And, um, and you're so focused on the game plan and, and what your, the coach uh, wants you to do uh, in that play that uh, you dive into that so much that uh, you sort of forget about uh, all the rest that's going on. You know, I was actually going to kind of, that sounds like a question I had that it's the in the zone question. You know, I'm, I'm a podcast producer and a writer at the same time. And sometimes when I write, I get in this zone and, and the next thing I know, I've written Absolutely. You know, pages upon pages and sun is down and it's dark in my apartment. Um, in, in, in sports, that phenomena is, is like when the game slows down for the player. Um, and you know, it's as if there was more time for the, the athlete to perform. Um, so I guess that is just a, pra- a, a result of practice and repetition then? It is. It's practice, repetition. I, I believe if you really understand the game at a high level, uh, again, the, I always like the science of the game, uh, the speed of the game will start to slow down. Um, if you're one of those players who, uh, I guess, isn't um, well-schooled in, in all the intricacies of football, I think the game can feel really, really fast and, and chaotic, and there's a lot going on. But uh, if you've really mastered uh, the, sort of the X's and O's of the game and what everyone's responsibilities are and the defensive responsibilities and what's going to happen, uh, and you can anticipate the game does slow down uh, much more than people realize. So, so how that's just a a a, a um uh, I just lost the word I was looking for a result I guess of the of just being mentally prepared. You know, I watched a a broadcasting reel of yours online, and in a video clip, um, I think you were on the NFL Network. You said if if you had to start on the pro level straight out of college, you would have been out of the game in a year. Um, you know that there's this, there's such a drastic difference between the two levels. Um, so I guess that is just a matter of being mentally prepared, or is there's a physical aspect to this too as well, right? Well. It- there, there is both, and over time, you physically uh, start to. So, we're, I think during that uh, NFL films or, or NFL uh, network uh, show that I was on, we were talking about the jump from college to the NFL. We were actually talking about Johnny Manziel of all mm-hmm. uh, players and, and how challenging that is. And uh, yes, the NFL game is faster. There are superior athletes who are more mature, they're older, they're 25 or 27 rather than 19. They're bigger, they're faster, they're stronger. They're also smarter uh, to play at that level, um, so which means they're, they're more instinctual and uh, those types of things. But I, I do feel, um, again, you get better coaching at the pro level. You spend more time on it, uh, so you understand the X's and O's of the game, the science of the game more. You also just do get used to practicing more. You know, in college, you don't practice as much as you do in the pros. You don't have 
uh, spring and summer, what we call OTAs or, or mini camps. You know, the training camp is is much longer in the NFL, about five or six weeks uh, than a college, uh, you know, camp. Um, so uh, you just spend so much more time on it that you sort of get used to the one, the complexity, and two, the speed of the game. Are there rules preventing teams from playing from practicing all year? Yeah, in the NFL, they have collectively collectively bargained the players and the NFL uh, to have a certain amount of uh, what they call, the OTAs are called off-season training activities, and they're really just practice. Uh, but those days, you can only spend so much time at the facility, um, only so much time on the practice field, so much time in the mean room. They all have it collective, collectively bargained. If it, that wasn't the case, uh, NFL teams, head coaches would – you know, when the season's over January, you know, 2nd or whatever, they would have players in the next day and start practicing for next year. That's just how they are. Uh, but uh, so the, the players negotiate uh, how much time is really spent uh, and uh, sort of um, I think it helps, obviously, that the player from, the, from a wear and tear on the body standpoint. Uh, it is hard to do anything at that high of a level the entire year. So most of, say, winter, you know, February, March, April, a lot of that time is not spent practicing, but more physically training, lifting weights, running, uh, getting top physical condition for the upcoming season. And then uh, obviously through those summer times, which are doing both, you're training physically and practicing, and then you get into actual training camp, which is less weightlifting and running and more just practice. Okay. Okay. Now, I, I want to talk a little bit about process and failure. Um, in for a little bit, you know, I've been a, a fan of football since I was a kid. Um, and over the years, I've heard enough players um, and even coaches say in interviews that this and really most competitive sports require an ability to move on after failure. There's like a, mm -hmm. a 24 hour rule. You know, you have 24 hours to grieve or celebrate and it's on to the next game or thing or whatever it may be. Um, not to imply that you are a failure because I think we all fail at some point in, in time. Um, are, are there any processes you use to remain grounded after a failure in your profession? Well, you are correct. You know, failure is very much a part of sports, um, and it's uh, of all sports. I mean, Michael J Jordan, the greatest basketball player of all time, in my opinion, he missed more shots than he made. So he failed more than he succeeded as far as shooting the basketball. Um, uh, in football, you're very early, whether it's high school, college, or pro, uh, coaches are always pushing next play, next play, next play there's really nothing you can do about whatever happened on the last play, whether it was really good or really bad. Um, and many times it's bad uh, it, when they're bringing that up. Hey, next play, let's move on. That was a mistake, next play. And because the, the clock is ticking, you don't have time to sit there and mope and contemplate uh, and worry about what happened. Obviously you have some time between games, but not much. I mean, the, the week is so regimented that, yes, as they say, after a loss, you maybe have 24 hours. But the next day, worrying about that game and feeling bad about that game or that play is not going to help you win the next one. So it's all about how can we now get better for the next game and learn from those mistakes. When you're actually in a game or in a practice and say you have a bad play, again, that play is not going to have an effect on the next play in a positive way if you spend any time worrying about it. Bad play happened. What's the next play and how can we maximize that play? Because that's the, the great thing about football is you can have a bad play uh, and the next play or the next group of plays, you can play perfect football and make up for, for that bad play. Um, so 
It's all about really playing each individual play as its own separate entity uh, throughout the 60 minutes of a football game. You know, and that when it comes to speaking in front of an audience, if if you make a mistake, it seems like that would be a little harder to recover um, because then at that point, your audience is sitting there with that one mistake. Um, and there isn't, I mean, I guess there's another play. They can, they can keep listening. Um, you know, but it, it seems like there's, that's the, that's the one difference is that you, in sports, there's so much activity going on, um, that I guess it doesn't require a short attention span, but, um, in a way that that could be kind of helpful. Um, whereas in speaking in front of an audience that maybe, is that the same, do you think? Yeah, well, yeah, I, I agree with you. When it's something I'd say you're speaking in front of a thousand people or you're, um, you're in a ballet or you're in a play, if you, you know, fall down and have an incredibly embarrassing mistake, it's hard to really make up from that. I think the difference is in, in football or, say, golf, another similar sport to football in a sense that there's individual plays or individual shots. Uh, and the last shot doesn't necessarily need to affect the, the next shot. Um, the hard part is when you're, you know, speaking in front of a crowd or said, and maybe doing some theater is that if you make a really, really bad mistake, there's not really much you can make up for that other than just put on the best performance you possibly can from then on out. People may remember that mistake uh, or they may remember, um, you know, the rest of your performance as being, you know, spectacular. So I think that's the difference between that type of world and say athletics is, as I said, the, you know, sort of the next play. Uh, doesn't have to uh, have any bearing on you know what happened the previous play. Okay. Okay. Um, now you also teach kids about the game of football at the Sage Rosenfels Quarterback Passing Academy. Um, so what do you tell the kids you teach about the process of preparing themselves for a game? Well, what I do is I train uh, you know young kids uh, who are you know just sort of learning football from, from fundamentals of the game. Uh, you know, quarterbacks, wide receivers—that's sort of my specialty. Obviously, I'm not really coaching defense, but we also talk about the X's and O's of the game and really teaching the science you know of football. Uh, what, what's really fascinating about the sport of football, different than say say uh, say basketball, is that it's such a uniquely positioned. Uh, sport. And uh, when I say that, um, you know, a, a college or, or pro a football team uh, has usually between 11 and, and 20, 25 coaches on the staff because each individual position is very unique and different from the rest. Uh, a wide receiver is very different from defensive line. A quarterback is very different from an offensive line uh, as far as responsibilities, workouts, what they need to know, all these things. So it's a very position specific. Uh, sport. And so what's amazing is how few people really understand all the things that a quarterback uh, needs to know to be successful. Um, you know, even the dad that was a really good high school or college player that played DB that's now coaching your son's, you know, Pop Warner or, or middle school team probably doesn't know that much about quarterbacks. That's just the way it is. Um, so what I try to do is is give as much knowledge to what I feel is you know, the, the most important position in football, the quarterback position. Uh, but as I'm teaching these sort of, you know, footwork and throwing fundamentals and these types of skills, I'm also talking about the sort of the mental side of, of the position, being the communicator, uh, being somebody that has to do, try to do things right all the time. You're sort of the ambassador of the team. 
so I try to give, I guess, life lessons uh, of the quarterback position, not just uh, individual skill uh, position work. Do you have any examples of those life lessons? Well, some things just like what you're talking about. I mean, there, there's a, what we were talking about, you know, making mistakes and coming back from those mistakes. And, um, you know, if a kid has a bad throw when we're doing a drill, to, hey, you know, it's a bad throw. Let's, let's do it right the next time. Let's try to do it right the next time. Um, to, um, you know, as a, as a quarterback on the team, uh, your entire school is really looking at you uh, to sort of set the tone of what they think the football team is all about. Uh, if the quarterback is a jerk, the student who doesn't play football and maybe is just in a band or or and just a regular student might think all the football players are jerks because the quarterback, I feel like, is sometimes the symbol or sets the tone uh, for the entire football team. And, and uh, the Dallas Cowboys head coach Jason Garrett once, once used the phrase ambassador. He said the quarterbacks are the ambassador of a football team. They have to hold their, themselves at a higher level. Um, um, of in, you know, on the field and off the field, in the classroom, how you treat other students, how you treat other people. Uh, people will make judgments on your entire team based off of what they feel about the quarterback. Interesting. So the, are there, can other personalities shine through? You know, for example, um, well, I'm, I'm using the Ravens only because I'm most familiar with them. Um, you know, Ray Lewis was the leader. It wasn't Flacco. It wasn't Kyle Bowler for sure. Um, you know, it, 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 and I don't, I don't mean, I don't say that to be disparaging. I'm sure he's a great guy. Um, it takes a lot of skill to throw a ball 70 yards from your knees without any accuracy. Um, but, uh, so, I mean, is, how do you get the, uh, as a quarterback, you know, is it, is it being that ambassador? Is is it, does it feel weird to kind of give it up to another position player? Well, I, I think a couple of things. Um, one, the, the quarterback position is, uh, it's hard to be timid and to be quiet uh, and to be sort of a quiet leader that just leads by example. Uh, I, I, I believe that um, the really good ones are always good communicators. You know, Peyton Manning loves to talk. Uh, Tom Brady likes to talk. Drew Brees likes to talk. Uh, Dan Marino loves to talk. Uh, it just sort of is a part of the position the position because you're nonstop communicating with everybody on the football team from the head coach and the, the coaching staff, even the general manager and the, the owner, the quarterback talks to them more than other players uh, or than the other players get to talk to say the owner, but also the, the, obviously your teammates. Now, when you're in that huddle, when you're calling a play, I've always believed you have to sell that play. Like it's going to work. Like, you know, I have the information guys and this play that I'm telling you, Twins right motion, sky right 525 up post swing. It's going to work. It's going to get us a first down. It's going to help us win the football game. You have to sell that. So I think over time, you do learn how to be a bit of a salesman and be a, a bit of a vocal leader. So I do feel it's important for the quarterback to do that. Now, on certain teams like the Ravens, and they have a, they had a guy like Ray Lewis, or in, in a lot of teams, defensive players that everyone can be a leader, but some uh, rarely does is it not really the quarterback who's sort of taking charge of that situation. I think Ray Lewis was sort of exceptional uh, in, in that, and in, in the exception uh, in that situation where he really was the vocal leader of that football team. He really enjoyed, you know, giving those speeches and having that spotlight. It was something he, you know, was really into. And I played with a, with a player named Junior Seau, who was very, very similar. He really enjoyed those speeches and and he'd played for so long in the NFL for such a for, at such a high level that uh, you know that that respect was automatically 
given there and his speeches were very believable because he had been there and done it you know so many times and so i always say respect is not given it's earned and uh, so no matter what you say you don't back it up with the way you practice and prepare and the way you handle yourself on and off the field it really doesn't matter what you say right before a football game if you haven't earned the respect of your teammates and coaches and and even your community do you do you buy into the um you know, that that leader has to be a very loud, outspoken, vocal guy. I mean, they, they talk about Flacco being very calm and collected. It's Joe Cool, you know, in the in the huddle and even even in in the locker room is. But he's still a leader, you know. Is 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 but is being loud and 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 he gets criticized for this too, you know. Even his own teammates yeah. and they criticize him for being too too calm and collected. Um, so I'm curious, what do you think about that? Uh, if that makes a difference, no. I- yeah, I, I don't think the quarterback has to be uh, the loud vocal leader. I think it also helped that with Joe Flacco early in his career, he had Ray Lewis and some other players, Terrell Suggs, who were very loud uh, you know, vocal leaders. So he didn't really have to have that, um, have that role. I think more often than not, uh, just because the way football is, people do look to the quarterback position for that vocal leadership. I don't think you have to be loud. I don't think you have to always be given the speeches. I don't think you have to, you know, have that role, but you have to be a good communicator and have to be somebody that, you know, can inspire the other players. I, I played with a player named Andre Johnson and I was playing for the Houston Texans. Uh, he is, he just retired this season after a long NFL career, fantastic wide receiver. And he barely said anything ever. I mean, in the weight room, in the locker room, uh, on the game field, he was very quiet. But he worked probably harder than everybody else on the football team. He was the best player on our football team. Uh, there was so much respect that went to the way he did his business that he didn't have to say very much. And when he did speak, believe me, those words had more effect on the players and the coaches than anything that you know a quarterback who spoke every single day you know had to say. Hmm. Interesting. So I guess that that silence sort of added a bit of credibility and, and I guess stoicism to what he was what he was saying when he did speak. Well, it's one of those things if, uh, you know, if you want to be heard, uh, listen, you know, type of scenario, right? So mm-hmm. uh, I think that, uh, again, uh, his credibility w- was based off of his performance and his work ethic. Work ethic. Uh, he didn't feel like he needed to be, you know, in that role to psych up his teammates. Uh, he felt like if you went on and did your business and, and everyone took care of their business, a team could be successful. But I think he also would say that it does help to have some vocal leadership uh, on a team you know, or, or any sort of business, whether it's a you know, CEO or, or a business owner. You have to have somebody that's communicating the information to everybody to sort of keep everybody on the same page and motivated. Sure, sure. Okay, um, just a couple more questions. Um, I, I think it's, you know, it's interesting to compare, um, you know, just thinking about the comparisons between what a scientist does, you know, in order to present highly detailed and complex research to peers or otherwise, um, you know, compare that with an athlete or at least a football athlete who has, you know, a little less than one week to prepare for uh, grueling physical and mental performance. Can you go through some of the preparations and practices that, that players do in any given week between the day after a game and the day before the next game? Sure. Um, and this is, again, one of those things that Norv Turner uh, said to me one time. He was my quarterback, sir. He's my offensive coordinator back in, I think, 2002 and 2003 in Miami. And he said that the great thing about football is we get to take a final 
every Sunday for, you know, basically 16 weeks in a row. Uh, most people don't get to do that. You work on a project, or you work in a company, and either you never really see the results ever over the course of maybe years, uh, or you see them over the course of a you know, project over the course of a few months uh, or six months or something like that. So you really do get to uh, see your, your work come to fruition very, very quickly during the season. So take us through a week, um, a, a general week. You, know, you, you say you play on Sunday and you're not playing until the following Sunday. Uh, Monday, you're, you come in, obviously you're exhausted, you're tired, you're beat up. Um, and uh, win or lose, that doesn't really matter. Usually you come in, you get a, a light lift in. Uh, it's important to work out after uh, a game. You usually have some sort of you know, running, jogging uh, type of uh, uh, exercise as well. Uh, according to strength and conditioning coaches, that helps with recovery, helps her work, get the blood flowing throughout the body to help uh, repair uh, you know, damaged tissues. And, and with that, then you also watch film. You watch the entire game. Uh, the head coach and, and the coordinators generally give speeches uh, to uh, to the team and to the respective sides of the ball about what happened in the ball game, what we did well, what we did poorly. They go through each individual play. It's a very that's a very slow process. They go through the game film with a fine tooth comb of every player, every position, and what happened you know, well and, and poorly in that ball game. Um, and then. Tuesday is the, uh, again, collectively bargained a day off for NFL players. Uh, a lot of players still do come in that day to, again, get in maybe another workout or get in a hot tub or start watching film uh, on the upcoming opponents, but there's nothing scheduled as far as meetings or anything in that ball game or on that day on, on Tuesday. It's also a day where uh, players many times will go volunteer at a, a children's hospital or, or something around the community. It's uh, definitely the day that the community relations director uh, grabs players and goes and does things in the community. Um, Wednesday is your big work day. Wednesdays and Thursdays are very similar. Um, Wednesday, you come in, let's just say, 7 o'clock in the morning, grab a bite to eat, and then you have meetings from, uh, say, around 8 o'clock until, oh, about 11 o'clock uh, many times, three, three and a half hours, something like that. And you're you're uh, watching film of the future opponents. You're um, watch, you're breaking down all the plays, or, or you should say installing all the plays that you're going to run, running plays, passing plays. These are the protections that we like. Uh, these are the players on the other team that we are concerned about. You know this this Terrell Suggs pass rushing defense event. We're worried about him. Therefore, we're going to use this these couple protections to help out running backs. You know this week you're going to need to chip that player before you get on your routes because he's get you know he's going to give us problems he's given everyone problems so far this season you go through all this game plan stuff uh go out in the field for a, what, a walk through so you're going to walk through some of these plays you've installed uh come back in grab some lunch then go out for you know a full two two and a half hour long uh practice in which you run a lot of these plays that you just installed uh that morning you know get through practice come back in afterwards obviously shower those types of things get ready and then and then watch or you actually go back in and watch practice uh, and and then that's pretty much your day usually you're you know say done at something like five o'clock uh, some players and I was one of those players like to stay even longer till a lot of times six o'clock watch even more film on my own uh, even start watching film and get ready for for Thursday so Thursday and Wednesday are very similar they're just in different situations Thursday uh, the plays you would install and run and, and, and practice would be uh, say plays on third down, which can get very complex in the NFL. Uh, plays in the red zone, 
uh, short yardage or goal line situations. That's you know sort of everything. Everything in the NFL is about situations. Is it first down and ten on your own twenty, or is it third down and and six on the other team's forty yard line? Uh, very different styles of plays and, and and schemes that different offensive and defensive coordinators like to use in those types of situations. So uh, that's Thursday. Very similar to Wednesday, and uh, Friday is also similar, but it's just shorter. Now after that practice, uh, you're done. You actually don't have the, you do the morning meetings, uh, then you go right out to practice uh, at around uh, you know say 11 o'clock or so. Practice until one. Uh, it's definitely lighter, uh, fewer pads. If no pads at all are worn on that Friday practice, it's supposed to be sort of the dress rehearsal. Uh, you know, the, the ball shouldn't hit the ground as a quarterback. There should be high completion percentage rates. Um, obviously, it's not as physical. Uh, it's not as, uh, as as dangerous in those types of practices. You're really trying to uh, practice perfectly, uh, as they say on that Friday. And then Saturday, you come in, you watch some more film, and then you go out for a walkthrough, and you talk about the first plays you want to call in the game. You know, after the whole week of practice, the coaches have found out, you know, these are the plays you really, really like. Uh, they went well first. Our quarterback uh, did well in these plays. Uh, our running backs uh, seem to really read these running plays really, really well. Uh, we want to call in, in the first, you know, say 15 plays of the game, the first quarter, these are the plays that we really, really do like. Uh, and then you might go over some unusual plays that maybe you don't practice uh, very often in that walkthrough. You're literally just walking through these different you know, you know, plays. And, and let's say if it's an away game, you go hop on a plane and you fly to another place and, and uh, have a few meetings that night uh, at a hotel, wake up the next day and go play. If it's a home game, it's nice because you get to go home for a half a day and hang out with your family before you usually go into a team hotel on Saturday night, uh, staying over. Uh, waking up the next day and obviously going to the stadium uh, and and uh, getting ready for kickoff usually around noon or one o'clock. Wow! So you, so the night before, if you're at home, you still stay in a hotel. Yes, absolutely. Uh, usually, say say uh, uh, seven o'clock or so. There's some sort of uh, meetings uh, again, offensive, defensive meetings, some sort of last minute uh, film watching. Uh, sometimes a uh, a head coach will have the the video directors make some sort of almost a highlight film of of your maybe of your last game and and you know footage that they've taken uh, within the team to make cool highlights to sort of get you excited for the next day. Uh, and then the head coach gives uh, you know some sort of probably inspirational uh, uh, talk uh, that night at the end of those meetings at say eight thirty nine o'clock. And then yeah, you stay in the hotel. Uh, they don't really. I mean, they most teams even will you know have a bed check. Uh, say 10 o'clock or something to make sure everyone's in the room. Uh, there's a security guard usually on every floor. Uh, so there's a very small likelihood of anyone get going out and, and uh, trying to have a good time on a Saturday night. Unlike Janikowski the night before the Super Bowl, but we'll, we'll leave that off. The, well, there's the... di- different teams have different uh, things that they, that they stress and believe in. The Oakland Raiders are one of those teams that probably <laughs> doesn't have uh, based off of their hit, you know, Al Davis, the old owner, was a little more loose than what he felt was important for football players. He sort of liked the guys that were a little bit more wild and uh, would go out the night before a game. It didn't bother him so much. But most head coaches, most coaches in general, uh, are control freaks. It's just the way they are. They really like to control the entire process. Football, one of the things about it, it's very much um, people relate it to the military for a lot of reasons because I think there's, you have a lot of people not only do you have, say, 60 players on a team, you've got, you know, said 20 coaches, and you've got uh, training staff and weightlifting staff and 
uh, equipment managers and video managers, all these people, and over probably 100 people uh, in a room, you have to have everyone very, very organized and on time. And uh, it's, you know, every minute sort of throughout the week is really accounted for. So uh, it's very, 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 very regimented and, and sometimes very similar, I think, in some ways to the military. You know, I, I heard a, a story recently. Um, Ladarius Webb was talking on a podcast and he was telling the, the story about the first time he met Ed Reed. Um, and it was the same year, it was same uh, John Harbaugh's first year. Um, and Harbaugh came in and they were in a meeting and I think Ed Reed might have been joking around or talking during the meeting and Harbaugh was like, you know, this is not a time for talking. Feel free to leave if you need to talk. And Ed Reed just got up and walked out. Um, and, <laughs> you know, and after that, Harbaugh was like, okay, I, I don't think I can be too, too much of a militant with these guys, you know, and I think there was a bit of a, early on, there was a bit of a rebellion um, between the, the, the veterans of the team who had been there for a while and, they all kind of worked it out, but you know, you talking about the the coaches being very um, militant about things. It's it just reminded me of that story. I thought it was kind of funny. Yeah, well, every head coach has different uh, philosophies and different way they treat their players. Uh, you, you call one old school, and you could call the other uh, player friendly. You know, Gary Kubiak. Um, was not a coach that believed sort of in that military style. He sort of believed in treating everyone like men uh, and that, you know, your job is to go out there and be a pro every day, act like a pro, practice, preparation, the whole thing. Just be a pro. That's all I ask of you. I'm not asking more and asking less. Other coaches uh, like to be, uh, have a lot of rules and be more strict and you have to wear this on the road. You have to wear a suit and tie. You have to, uh, you know, be a certain way at all times. And Multiple ways to, to do it. I don't know if there's one that's better than the other. Um, Bill, Bill Belichick's a very negative coach. He likes to coach through negativity. And, uh, you know, Bill Walsh, uh, the great old West Coast, uh, you know, coach from the, the old days of the San Francisco 49ers, he was very into that sort of, uh, you know, California feel-good positivity, you know, not yelling, screaming, you know, type of coaching. So multiple ways to do it. Uh, I know Jimmy Johnson, the great old Dallas Cowboys coach, used to say, Something like uh, every player is treated differently because every player uh, means something different to this football team. So sometimes a player like Ed Reed, a, a first battle Hall of Famer, uh, was, given, was given more lead, leeway by some coaches than somebody who's just barely uh, you know, trying to make the football team. Mm, I, love, I love Kubiak. He, what, the season he was the offensive coordinator for the Ravens was probably one of the favorite, my favorite seasons to watch. And he, it was it was hard to watch him leave, um, but I'm glad he got the opportunity that it was kind of his dream job. So, um, but anyway, you, you mentioned Kubiak, and I'm I'm a, I'm a huge yeah, fan. Yeah, well, I, I played I I played for Kubiak for three years in Houston. Um, he's probably my favorite coach I ever played for. Uh, he uh, he played in the NFL for a long time. He was John Elway's backup for I think about ten years with with the Denver Broncos mm -hmm. uh, back in the '80s, and I, I think that really helped. Uh, him understand what players go through uh, and what they and what uh, you know the players like expectations like what are my what what do you expect of me what do I need to do um, uh, to, to do my job and I think that's what he why players like playing for him is he creates certain expectations this is what I expect of my players and my coaches and and after that so you can sort of do what you want and uh, I think play and also his his style of coaching makes sense. Uh, his 
understanding of the what I call the science of the game uh, makes a lot of sense the way he communicates it. He's not a yell and a screamer, um, but when he does raise his voice, you know it's something very, very serious and something very important to him. So uh, he's not a, a, um, a guy who coaches through fear. He's a guy who coaches through working together, and that's why he was probably my favorite uh, coach uh, in my career. I like that. I like that. Do you think that it's that coaches are um, are better coaches if they were players at one point? I believe so. Uh, I actually wrote an article recently. I haven't uh, sent it to. I, I write an article for the Score dot com uh, every week, and and um, haven't sent it off to off to him yet. But I'm a big believer in in particular quarterbacks. It really helps to have former quarterbacks be a coach. Uh, obviously, it's the position I played. And so I'm extremely biased in the sense I feel like we know more about the sports than the other positions, but I feel like we do. Uh, we have to have a very good understanding of uh, offensive line responsibilities, uh, what receivers go through against the secondary players, uh, what defenses are trying to do to offenses, their different styles. Um, we, we're constantly studying athletes. You know, what does this linebacker do well? Does he cover well? Is he more of a run stopper? Uh, what type of routes can we beat him on? I feel like we as quarterbacks understand more about the, uh, all the aspects of the football team than the other positions. And so I think yeah, former quarterbacks do make usually better coaches, but not always. I mean, I don't think Bill Belichick was a, uh, you know, he wasn't an NFL player and I think he's the greatest uh, you know coach of all time. So not necessarily, but I do believe it definitely helps to, to have played the game and to go through uh, what the players go through mentally and physically. Yeah, and you you can say the same about catchers in baseball. I mean, they're considered the quarterback of the team, you know, when they're playing because <clears throat> they have to. <clears throat> excuse me, they have to call the the pitches. The de- they set the defense, um, you know. So and and you see now that that these these catchers are 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 managers and they're successful. Joe Girardi, for example. Um, so yeah, Mike Sosha. There's there's mm-hmm. been uh, many documented stories about catchers being. Uh, probably the best baseball managers or just there's a lot of baseball managers that were former catchers. They have to understand, you know, they do scouting reports on each individual hitter uh, and what they, you know, what we should stay away from and, and what, uh, you know, what counts we should throw, what type of pitch on. Uh, that's very detailed, very different than the center fielder who is pretty much standing out there waiting for a ball to be hit to them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, and Kurt Schilling, love him or hate him, was one of the most studious players I had ever read about. You know, he would sit there in game with an iPad or a notebook and just skim every hitter that he was about to face. Um, yeah, so. I mean, information is very important. It is for football. Uh, it is for, I think, uh, for, for all sports, for golf, for, for baseball. The more information you have, the better. Um, there was a, a, a common saying um, uh, in, in football. I can't remember what, what exactly what it was. It was, it was basically sometimes you would be um, frozen by too much information. Um, that you would have so much running through your head about, oh, my God, they, they, they might do this splits or they might play this coverage or this is going to – and all these negative things start popping up in your brain if almost you have too much information sometimes. But I always thought it was better to have too much information than not enough. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right, so last question. I'll let you get on with your day. I'm sure you're a busy guy. Um, do you have any tips or lessons as either or both a player and a broadcaster about communication that you can share with, with grad students? Well, I think to not be scared of communicating. I think some people are, are sometimes uh, concerned about not saying the right thing uh, or possibly be being wrong. You know, I have to go on the radio all the time and give my opinion 
about what's going to happen in a football game, and I'm sure I'm wrong all the time. Uh, I still can have an opinion about it based off of the information that I know and I understand. I can also change that opinion. That's okay. You learn, you get new information, your opinion changes, and I think that's what a lot of times slows people down or intimidates people is the is a possibility that they could be wrong, uh, and I think that's uh, that should be um, let go. And I, I think it's important if you feel strongly about uh, what you have to say, uh, people aren't going to realize how important it is unless you communicate it strongly uh, and sort of sell it. Um, not in a fake way, but in a, in a genuine way that you really believe based off the information that you have acquired over the years or, or the project that you've worked on, that you really believe strongly uh, in the results that you've gotten. That's good advice. And, and being flexible, you mentioned that. You know, I think that's being, being willing to change a mindset about something. Um, oh, absolutely. Uh, uh, yeah, and, and another reason Kubiak, Gary Kubiak, I liked so much was he also understood the, the, the NFL game uh, was always changing. All sports, uh, everything is always changing. That's one thing you can always expect from game to game, year to year uh, in the NFL was change. The only thing that always stayed the same was change. And uh, the, always the ability to adapt, to learn more, uh, change your opinion on how we're going to win the next football game. Uh, maybe it's at halftime. You realize we're not, we can't run the football. We thought that was going to be a way to victory today. It's not going to happen. We're going to have to throw it. So ability to take in more information and possibly adapt to it. I, I love that. The only, the only thing that stays the same is change. That's, that's, that's a bumper sticker right there. It's a good um, one. Yeah, it is. It is. All right, Sage, I really appreciate you taking the time and, and, and doing this for me. I really, I, I had a great time talking with you. No problem. Thank you for having me on today. This podcast was written and produced by Adam Greenfield. The executive producer of this podcast is Patrick Yurick. The Great Communicators Podcast. The Great Communicators Podcast, Grad Comics Live, Grad Comics The Game, and the Technically Speaking Comic Book series are part of a professional development initiative called GradX. GradX is, GradX made, is made possible by the Office of Graduate Education at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. To find out more, about, find Grad out more about GradX, as well as get access to other episodes of the Great Communicators podcast, go to gradx.mit.edu. For more information, for more information and links on the music used in this episode, please see the show notes.